Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, particle physics and space stuff. And what my research is all about is really trying to understand the basic building blocks of reality. What are the basic building blocks of the universe? Your body is mostly composed of empty space. You have about a billion particles of something called dark matter flowing through your body every second. And so that's kind of like, if you ask the question, what was before the Big Bang? We, we don't really know how to formulate an answer to that right now, but we, we do have a, you know, we, we have, there is an idea that is out there that we could be one universe in a possible, possibly infinite number of multiverse, or sorry, universes in a multiverse sort of landscape, if you will. Maybe mathematics is the actual underpinnings of everything around us in existence. Maybe our universe is secretly made of math. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps support the show. So our first guest is trying to unlock the secrets of the universe. He's a particle physicist working on the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. I'm not going to pretend to understand the ins and outs of the lot of, of a lot of the things that we talk about, but he does a fantastic job of not only kind of diving into the details that if you're really interested and know about particle physics, there's a side of it for you. But for people like me, he does a fantastic job of summing up what this all means. And for me, it really changed the way that I look at the world around us. And I left with a new appreciation of the universe because some of this stuff is just mind-blowingly cool this is particle physicist james beecham what are you guys doing over there i know what you're doing but i don't know what you're doing so like yeah so uh we're doing a lot of things but at the end of the day what cern does and what our research here is, and what my research is all about is really trying to understand the basic building blocks of reality what are the basic building blocks of the universe and the way that those building blocks interact? So, um, for example, you know, we, it, it, you know, we have this enormous, so CERN to be clear is a, is a host, it's a physics laboratory, right? It's an enormous physics, particle physics laboratory. And it was founded in the late fifties, early sixties by a bunch of scientists that were uh, determined to have a physics institute that was specifically designed to investigate the fundamental physics of the universe, specifically for non-militaristic purposes. So to try to have, you know, Europe and the world heal after World War II. Um, this entire thing, this enormous uh, endeavor, 
at the end of the day, I just like to remind people that it all, all of this research, if it seems very arcane and weird and like, uh, just kind of like, I can never understand this fully. At the end of the day, all of what we're doing comes down to a sliced bagel. I, I, I'm an, an adapt, adopted New Yorker. So in New York, you take a bagel and cut the bagel in half and then cut the half in half. How far can you go? Eventually you get to a molecule, right? When we know that a molecule exists. So then you ask, can I cut a molecule? Yeah, we know that a molecule is made up of atoms. You know, for example, water is H2O, two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom stuck together. So then you ask, can I cut an atom? Yeah, it turns out that an atom, like I said, has a nucleus in the middle and some electron particles swarming around it in a cloud. Then you ask the question, can I cut an electron? As far as we know, the answer right now is no. There's nothing inside of an electron. Then you ask, can I cut the nucleus? Yes, of course, the nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons stuck together. Can I cut a proton? It turns out, yes, there's stuff inside of a proton. There's three little particles called quarks held together by other particles called gluons. I didn't call them gluons. Some joker did back in the day, but whatever. The, so these individual particles called quarks. Then you ask, can I cut a quark? The answer, as far as we know right now, is no. As far as we know, an electron is a tiny individual zero volume point of stuff. That doesn't make any sense. Like how can something have zero volume, but still have things like mass and energy and charge and spin, all these kinds of quantities. Turns out this is possible with the kind of weird rules of quantum mechanics. We can talk about quantum mechanics if you want, but you know, this is, so it turns out that when you add, when you ask uh, a seemingly simple question like that, how small can I cut anything? A very childlike question Turns out you're secretly asking a much more profound question to begin with, which is what was holding anything together to begin with, right? So this, the, you know, the nucleus and the electron, they're not just held together by magic, right? So this, it ends up that particles interact with other particles, these tiny individual uncuttable things via forces of nature. And as far as we know right now, the ones that we've discovered, there are 17 different species of individual uncuttable particles in the universe. And basically everything around you that you see is composed of these. So that's what we do here at the Large Hadron Collider. We do that kind of a, at CERN in general, but you know, specifically at the Large Hadron Collider, we're trying to understand what are the basic fundamental building blocks of the universe, uh, you know, the things that make up everyone around everything around us. But so this 17, this kind of list of 17 known species of different particles, and they have names, things that you might have heard in papers or on the news, like the electron. Okay, you know the electron. You're swarming with electrons. <laughs> yeah, you've heard of the photon. This is the particle of light. You've heard of quarks. Like I just said, there's things called muons. There's things like tau particles, Z particles, W plus minus, these kinds of things. But we have a list of what the known particles are. However, we know for a fact that this cannot be the full and complete picture of the entire universe. This, these 17 species of particles that I just described, they basically account for all the stuff around you and me. And so we kind of, you know, as humans, we get kind of hubristic, you know, and in fact, back in the day, it's like, yeah, we're the center of everything. You know, this, the earth is in the center of the universe. It's everything's about us. It's like, well, no way, man. So in fact, these particles are only account, can only account for about 5% of all of the stuff that we know is in the universe. The 95% other stuff is stuck into other forms that we currently don't know what they are. So we give them the name dark, dark energy, dark matter. You have about a billion particles of something called dark matter flowing through your body every second. It's been going on your entire life. It never touches you. It's always there. We have no idea what part, what kind of particle this is. I talked about forces. There's only four known forces that we know of. And three of them are the ones that we care about in particle collisions because the fourth one, gravity, doesn't even rate. 
when I in the Large Hadron Collider, we collide protons. Two little protons come together. Hopefully, they get close enough to collide. And when they collide, you can calculate the different types of way that they can interact. And in fact, a collision doesn't mean that we're smacking them into each other and stuff flies out of the proton. That's not what happens. In fact, we want them to get close enough so that the particles inside the protons can start to feel each other and they can start to interact by themselves. So if we imagine we take two quarks out of these protons and they collide. So then that's what happens with the little da-da-da. So we can calculate the types of forces that will uh, that will participate potentially in this collision. And gravity does not even rate. The gravitational force between two protons is basically nothing. <laughs> it's, you know, you, it doesn't even matter. So this is a big open question. We don't actually know why gravity is so weak compared to the other forces of nature. It's, it's a huge open question. That's Again, we can get into the details if you want. It's really quite fascinating. That's one of the questions that's consumed me since I was a child and, and you know, tens of thousands of my colleagues as well. And this Large Hadron Collider, for those that don't know, it's a 27 kilometer circular tunnel here on the border of France and Switzerland, about 100 meters underground. And in this tunnel, 100 meters underground, we use superconducting magnets. Some of you may have, you may have seen these, uh, these photos online of these big blue tubes that say CERN on the side of them. These are, these uh, are casings that contain superconducting magnets inside them. And we use these superconducting, we have to keep these superconducting magnets colder than outer space. And we use these to accelerate protons. Again, you're mostly made of protons and neutrons and electrons. We take protons and we accelerate them to almost the speed of light, 99.999999% of the speed of light. It kind of sounded like I was glitching there, but I was not. 99.999999% of the speed of light. And then we, once they get to that speed and the highest energy that humans have ever used in a collider experiment, then at four points, there's two different beams that are going in opposite directions around the ring. And at four points on that ring, we bend the beams together, cross the streams, we bend the beams together, and then those beams, those protons start to collide. And the place where you, where you collide these protons, you better build an enormous detector because quantum field theory magic, okay, it's not actually magic, quantum field theory magic is going to happen. And for example, by, and by big, I mean enormous. So the one that I work on is called Atlas. Atlas is six stories high, 46 meters long. It's like an enormous soda can tipped on its side. And the reason why we have to build something huge like that is because when you collide protons at such high energies and speeds, you're briefly we are briefly recreating the conditions of the universe as they were just a fraction of a second after the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Because understanding what was happening back then, which we don't currently understand, Understanding what was happening back then will help us explain the universe we see now. You know, when I hear about stuff like this, the thing that always gets me is like, how can this be real? How can this be so small? How can the universe be really this big? I just can't even imagine it. Yeah, it's pretty weird. I completely agree with you. And, it, and it, obviously that comes from, at least, I don't know, obviously, but for me, this these kind of urges... Eh, they come from the fact that you and I as humans, honestly, we evolved for a very long time within a really, really rare um, set of conditions that the universe does not overwhelmingly does not have in it, right? So for example, like you and I as a species, we evolved in a very friendly planet for this kind of a thing with you know just the right distance from a star so that the sun, the energy coming toward it was just enough to be able to like heat it in just the right way at the right time so that then it, it sort of developed this atmosphere and just the right conditions with the temperatures and things so that the water and that you'd had a kind of primordial soup where different types of 
of chemicals came together in just the right way over very long time periods to eventually evolve to this thing that we know as life and then evolve to you and I. So we existed, we evolved within a very, very fuzzy, friendly range of conditions that the universe overwhelmingly is not like. So these kind of, these kind of urges that we have where it's like, this can't, this doesn't make any sense. It comes from the fact that you and I don't, didn't evolve in that that either of those ranges, either the range of the very small or on the realm of the very, very large. So if we figure out this dark matter, right, that 95% of the universe or the number that you said, if we figure that out, then what changes? What would change is hopefully it would deepen our understanding of uh, what the universe is made of. At the end of the day, that's like a big open question for science that it seems obvious we'd have to solve, right? If I tell you, yeah, I, we are very good at, you know, as physicists, as astronomers, at taking a sort of like budget stuff budget of the universe and we can say that five percent of the universe is stuck into stuff that's you and me we call this baryonic matter it doesn't don't don't worry about the name but it's just stuff that you and i you know and potatoes and, and beyonce are made of you know these things are this is baryonic matter we know that about 25 percent of the universe give or take is dark matter and the rest of the universe is this thing called dark energy if if we find out what dark matter is in principle we will answer that question what you know to know what at least 25 percent of the universe is made of however it's entirely possible what if that what if we don't understand gravity correctly maybe there's something else we need to understand right so if, for example, we look for dark matter particles in all the possible ways that we can think of it, so we talk to our theorist friends and they give us 10 new ways that we hadn't thought of to do an experiment for dark matter, and we, all those are ruled out, then maybe we have to go back to the drawing board and say, hmm, maybe we have to change Einstein a bit. Maybe we have to actually change our understanding of gravity. Maybe for you and I, gravity is one thing here on Earth, but maybe on galactic scales, as gravity gets farther away from the center of a galaxy, maybe you have to modify things. <clears throat> and in fact, one of my colleagues from, uh, from the Netherlands, he has an even wilder idea that gravity is not actually a force. It's an emergent, pro let me see if I can get it right, an emergent property of space-time due to the fact that the fundamental building blocks of the universe are not quantum particles and fields, but in fact are informational qubits that create a kind of pressure. So that, that even goes beyond me. So if you're like, I didn't understand that. I don't understand that either. So <laughs> this is my friend, Eric, and he has a really great theory about this, but this is just, just to say like, you know, we, 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 if we understand, if we discover what dark matter is, that will allow us to better understand at least 25% of the universe. How come we haven't figured it out yet? That's a tough one. Uh, because we don't have a good, suggestion, a theoretical hint or some kind of like really good suggestion as to where like an arrow pointing, you should do an experiment here and you should find a discovery. And that's super weird because we have kind of had these all the time in the past for physics. And it's, that's why right now in physics is a very, is a very exciting time to be a physicist because we have huge open questions and we're kind of running out of the sort of theoretical hints as to what kind of an experiment we should design to either discover the thing or rule out the one thing it could be. I'll give you an example of what I mean. So this particle we discovered back in 2012 here at the Large Hadron Collider is called the Higgs boson. Um, sometimes in the press, it's referred to as the God particle. Um, none of us like that name because, it, it, you know, it kinda, honestly, since deity, deities are kind of, you know, okay, we can disagree, but deities to me, they're, and to a lot of physicists, they're human inventions. And it kind of does a sort of disservice to this particle as to how awesome it is. So <laughs> um, the, uh, but this particle we discovered this, the existence of this particle was predicted way back in the sixties. 
and, and in fact, it turned out that it was there waiting for us to discover all along, but we had never built a large enough experiment to discover it. So that's the same way with future, you know, uh, future discoveries. So like the, you know, dark matter, the reason why we can't just say, oh, let's go and discover where dark matter should be is that dark matter is a concept. It's a, it's a phenomenon that we observe, but we don't have any idea, number one, if it is a particle, but if it is a particle, we don't know what the mass of this thing should be. So it's basically impossible for us to say, oh, we should build this experiment and we should, you know, either it's there or we rule it out and have to go back to the drawing board. And the mass of this dark matter could be over an enormous range. So that's why it's both scary and also kind of, you know, wonderful to be a physicist at this moment because we have huge open questions and we're really out of like the big theoretical hints like the flashlights it's like Ching, go over there and that's where your discovery is we don't have those anymore it, you know it's dark matter is flowing through you all the time and it's never touched you so that means that dark matter either never interacts with you and i type matter or if it does it operates via some new force of nature that is so 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 weak that it almost never happens I guess the thing that I kind of don't understand about it is it seems to be like we can't find it, but it's everywhere. It's very rare, but it always happens. Well, the way I would put it is that it, ne it never actually interacts with you at all. Think of it this way. Your body is mostly composed of empty space. This is a weird thing to think about because like you look at your hand, you're like, no, yeah, this like, is like James, what that what are you talking about? This I see is this like, whole thing. I'm like, very solid. About? Right, right. Yeah. It's like, look, I can punch my hand. I'm very solid, right? Well, okay, that's great. But in fact, if I look at your body, if I look at what you're made of, so for example, your body is overwhelmingly made of four elements. We've got hydrogen, we've got carbon, we've got oxygen, we've got nitrogen. Basically like 99 point something percent of your body is made up of these four elements. But then you ask the question, what is a hydrogen atom? Do you remember what a hydrogen atom is from, from chemistry? It's made of hydrogen. It's okay if you don't. I know, I know it is composed yeah. of hydrogen. A hydrogen atom. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. So, uh, but but it's you know it's a thing. You, you can think of it in your head, right? If you want to, it's like your body is made up of these like atoms, and maybe these atoms are sort of spherical in a way. I right? think of a bunch of balls that are stuck together in a way, and so your body, at a very very small scale, all these balls are kind of like bumped into each other, and some are overlapping a little bit, and that's what you're made of. That's what an atom is. But an atom of hydrogen. My job as a particle physicist is to say, okay, the atom of hydrogen is not actually like a little ball. Let's look inside this thing. Maybe there's stuff inside. And it turns out there is stuff inside of a hydrogen atom. A hydrogen atom is made up of a little nucleus in the middle, which in fact only has one proton. And then it has a, it has a cloud that's composed of an electron, one single electron particle that's moving so fast around it that it makes a kind of cloud of electron-ish stuff, which gives it the 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 impression it gives it the effect of being behaving like a sphere does that make sense like it's spinning <clears> around <throat> so fast that like i'm imagining my finger trying to poke into it but it's spinning around so fast that i yeah i'm always hitting the electron no matter what exactly okay. yeah exactly it's always zooming around like that. It creates a kind of a cloud and, and, you know, for physics terms, it has a particular force attached to it. But yeah, from a distance, you're like, you know, not a super far distance, but like, oh yeah, that's a sphere. It's a hydrogen atom with one electron moving super, super fast that creates a kind of shell around it, right? So that's what you should have in your head. But it, we know that inside that thing, that it's composed of one single particle in the middle called a proton. And then there's one particle zooming around at a very high speed called an electron. Okay. But what if I were able to, and I could do this, you know, if I'm a physicist, I can stop time and I stop the electron 
and, and the proton is sitting there in the middle. So then if I do that, I can then measure what the size of these, these individual particles are, right? Again, because what we see is a phenomenon, is an effect due to the fact the electron's spinning around so fast. What if I stop the electron and I have the proton in the middle? Then I ask, okay, how big are these things? How, how much stuff is there actually in a hydrogen atom? So if, if a proton in the middle, the, the, so the, in fact, the electron, as far as we know, has zero size, has zero volume. It's like a little point of something, a point in, of nothingness that can still carry things like charge and spin and mass and things like that. The proton actually has a size. So for example, if, my, if a proton in the middle of a hydrogen atom and the distance between these two things, the proton and the electron is actually so huge that it kind of like, it's it's really hard for me to even like wrap my head around it. And I'm a physicist. So if the proton in the middle of a hydrogen atom were the size of my fist, then the most likely place you'd find the electron particle going around it would be something like two and a half kilometers away. That's, and I don't know how to translate that into miles, but like two and a half kilometers, that's a large amount of space away. And in between my fist and the electron is nothing. It's empty space. There's nothing inside there. And then if you go in all directions, that's an incredible amount of space, right? Like in every... Think about that. So think about it. If your body is overwhelmingly made of hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, and oxygen, and those other ones are similar in size to the, you know, the size is about the same. A hydrogen atom, if your body is made up of a huge number of hydrogen atoms, the hydrogen atom, in fact, is one proton that's the size of my fist and then an electron that is two and a half kilometers away and in between is nothing. It's empty space. So your body is overwhelmingly empty space. The electrons are zooming around at such a rate that it gives this effect of you being solid, but you're not actually solid. So is there any chance that I could someday just walk through a wall then? <laughs> yes, there is. I don't want to get into the details here, but it actually doesn't have so much to do with the empty space part of you. It has something to do with quantum mechanics. And if, if you know, if, if some of you want to dig into quantum physics uh, on your own, there is a probability that if I were leaning against a wall and I leaned against the wall for long enough, all of my particles could spontaneously tunnel through the wall and appear on the other side of the wall. But this, uh, the time that I would have to lean against the the wall to make this happen to eventually allow this to happen is something like i forget the number like maybe 10 to the power 35 years uh i'm not probably not going to live that long especially given the fact that the universe is currently the age of the universe is currently only 10 to the power 10 years so the oh, the reason i said this the reason i said this is to answer your question is that your body is overwhelmingly like this empty space so we know for a fact that there are particles moving through your body all the time that also we, we know for a fact they exist and they also don't interact with you at all. Like I said, you actually have every second you have about one particle called a muon going through your head. And this is coming down from, and the muon is the kind of a more massive cousin of the electron. Again, your body is swarming with electron particles. You keep everything the same about the electron, but increase its mass a bit. You have this particle called a muon. And we know that these are raining down on us all the time from the upper atmosphere. Um, they don't harm you. They don't touch you. They zoom through your body. They zoom through your body as if you're not even there because they almost never interact with your particles because they just go through this empty space and it's not even a problem for them. They're going at the same rate as the electron. So there's no reason for them to ever bump oh, into the electron. It's zipping right through me, huh? Wow. Yeah. And if you hold, if you hold up your thumb, every second, 
you have about 65 billion particles called neutrinos coming from the sun and going through your thumb every second. 65 billion from the sun through your thumb. So when you think of it that way, it actually makes a lot more sense that there could be something like dark matter that we just don't currently know what it is that's also zooming through your body all the time. And it just never touches you at all. Um, are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Please, please bring it on. When you run a test, do you feel it? Does it have a smell? Does it have a sound? Like, what's it like being there during one of these tests? Or is it just like, there's one yeah. happening in the other room right now and I wouldn't even know? Well, it's an interesting, it's a very fascinating um, facility because CERN is a host laboratory and there's a large number of projects going on everywhere all at once. And the largest one, the most prominent one is this one called the Large Hadron Collider, right? Because it's very huge. It's the largest experiment in human history, a 27 kilometer or 17 mile circular tunnel, you know, under 100 meters underground um, that has something, you know, tens of thousands of people working on it around the globe. A lot of them are based here, but other ones are based all over the globe, universities all over the globe that are working on this research. But on the campus of CERN, which is also quite large, there's a bunch of other experiments going on at all times. So if you ask the question, what, you know, what happens when we're doing a test, if, number one, what experiment are you talking about? The Large Hadron Collider, that one is always happening 100 meters underground, so you don't hear or see or smell anything. <laughs> so if you're talking about what happens, what would it be like to experience the Large Hadron Collider colliding protons, uh, you would not be able to be, get close to the collision when it happened because there's no possible way for you to be underground when the collision happens. There's going to be a little bit of radiation whenever you have, uh, whenever you accelerate charged particles like protons to very high speeds and energies and smash them together. Inevitably, this ends up with some things that we think of as radiation. It's not dangerous to humans because it dissipates very quickly after you turn off the machine. But there is some radiation, which means that you cannot be downstairs uh, 100 meters underground when the collisions are happening. Is there a chance you'll blow up the world? This is a very good question. And the answer is very, very the answer is very, very simple. No, there's no chance. <laughs> but so, what if you discover dark matter and then all of a sudden it blows up the world? That's never going to happen. Think about it. If we discover dark matter, Nick, that just gives us information about the universe. Mm -hmm. Like there's still nothing you could do with dark matter. Think about it. Like we know that dark matter is all around us all the time. Like I can't, if I suddenly know what it is, I can't like collect it and do stuff with it. It's still, what am I going to collect it with? My hands? It's been going through my hands my entire life. I can't touch it. I can't do anything with it. So and there's no way, if, you know, if we discover dark matter, there's no way for us to make like dark buildings out of dark matter. That's not why we do the research we do. We don't do it because we're looking for profit or for products or for things. We're strictly curious about the universe, full stop. That is awesome in, in and of itself. And so, no, there's no possible way for us to blow up the, the earth. Um, and I'll give you a, a very concrete reason. If you're not satisfied with the, you know, uh, with the answer, trust me, bro, um, <laughs> I will give you a reason as to why this is. So when I say... The Large Hadron Collider is at, currently we're colliding protons at the highest energies that humans have ever used in a collider experiment. Maybe that sounds very dangerous or daunting, but the key phrase is that one in the middle by humans. So this highest energy by humans is, you know, we say 13.6 trillion electron volts and we're like very proud of our proton collisions at these high energies, but 
we're actually no match for nature itself. So above your head just now, for example, there are way higher energy collisions going on in the universe all the time. In fact, some of them very, very close to you right now. So what I mean is that if you go up into the upper atmosphere right now of our Earth, if you go up into the upper atmosphere, the upper atmosphere is constantly being bombarded by cosmic ray particles from far away in the universe, like protons, in fact, that are coming from weird sources far away, other galaxies, others, you know, other sources. And they've been traveling for a very long time and eventually get to the Earth. And they're coming in at very, very high speeds and energies. And they're smacking into the atoms in the upper atmosphere. And these are also collisions. These are high energy collisions. So these particles are coming in, smacking into the upper atmosphere. And these as that smacking happens, there's a bunch of sort of a cascade of, coll of collisions that happens and a bunch of low energy particles come down. For example, these muons that I said, you have about a one muon going through your head every second. That this is sort of this muon rain that is a result of cosmic ray high energy particles smacking into the upper atmosphere from outer space. And these collision energies are way higher, can be way higher than the, we use, those we use at the Large Hadron Collider. So it's sometimes thousands of times the energy that we use at the Large Hadron Collider. So if you're worried that this energy, when I say high energy, that's some kind of dangerous thing, it's only, it's only high for humans. And the universe has way, you know, we're, we're no match for Mother Nature. She has much more interesting things going on, much higher energy than we can. So it's totally safe. How does the universe end? Do we freeze to death or burn to death? Whew, that's a very good question. Uh, I would probably answer in two different ways. So if you mean how is the universe itself going to end, number one, we don't know the answer. Um, we have some good candidates, and it seems likely that our universe, the one thing we do know right now about our universe is that it's expanding, which means that everything in all directions is moving away from everything else. And the farther you get away from us, things are moving away from us at very, much higher speed, at very, very high speeds, very fast speeds. And so we know that everything in the universe is moving apart from each other. Everything is expanding. And as far as we know right now, this is going to continue. And in fact, it's going to speed up indefinitely. So we know right now, as far as we understand, the universe will continue to expand forever. And so the short answer to this question is that likely our universe will continue to continue to expand indefinitely and eventually some far, 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 far future, you know, not even like our, we can't even wrap our brains around it, you know, 10 to the power 60 years, 10 to the power 100 years, 10 to the power, 10 to the power 1000 years, something like that. Eventually, somewhere along this timeline, everything in the universe will eventually decay. So, you know, if you, if you feel bad about, you know, for example, getting old, it's like, oh, my body's, you know, deteriorating. It's like, don't worry, everything in the universe is going to eventually decay. Not just your body, not just planets and stars, but individual protons themselves will eventually just get bleh, and they'll turn into like just kind of raw energy. And eventually the universe will be completely dominated by black holes, and, the black, and again, black holes don't care about us at all. And these black holes will sit there for a very long time until eventually even black holes will evaporate. They will give up all their stuff and there'll be nothing in the universe. It will just be kind of a, a, a fuzz soup of, of kind of energy. And eventually it will reach what we refer to. It seems that it will eventually reach what we refer to as a kind of a heat death, meaning the sort of meaning that the universe will attain a state of nearly maximum entropy. You don't need to know anything about it. It's basically a state of disorder, basically completely disordered chaotic universe and nearly absolute zero temperature, which means that nothing can ever happen ever again in the universe ever. And it will stay that way probably for eternity. So that's as far as we know now, the universe will probably end in this kind of like 
cold death that'll just sit there indefinitely. I see you look on your face. You want to ask a question or something. <laughs> I guess. Well, then how did it, right? Let's, let's, let's go into the, let's go into the big question that everybody always wonders, right? So then how did it get here? Yeah, we, we do, we do know a lot about that. In fact, that's one of the, one of the great successes of modern science, right? Is the fact that we do know a very large amount of the history of the universe with a few kind of key gaps along the way that we're filling in now from when the universe was, you know, currently our universe is, is about 13.8 billion years old. So if you run the, you, and, a, we, and we know that it's expanding, right? We know that everything's expanding in all directions. So if you just take like the YouTube slider of the universe and slide it backwards, right? As, as you go backwards, everything has to go you get smaller and smaller and eventually you go all the way back closer and closer to something known as T equals zero, the beginning of the universe. Everything had to have at some point had to have been packed into a tiny dense little point that then started to expand. And we can go in that. We actually know quite well about our universe from now way, way, way back to when the universe was about, I guess, 10 to the power minus, I don't know, minus 15 seconds old, 10 to the power, power minus 20 seconds old, something like that. So if you have 0 0.000, 25 zeros, and then a one, that number of seconds old, up to 13.8 billion years. That's pretty good. There's, of course, there's a lot of gaps in there that we're still trying to understand. Like, how did particular types of stars evolve? Like, what kind of black holes were made at the beginning of the universe? All this kind of a thing. But that's pretty remarkable, right? That we can go back to like 10 to the yeah. power minus 15 seconds and kind of know what was happening, but that's not enough for us, right? As physicists, we're like, okay, well, what, what was before that? What happened before 10 to the power minus 15? That's basically what we do. When you build enormous machines like the Large Hadron Collider, what you're doing is you built, when you build a larger machine of higher energy, you're actually looking farther back in time. So as you go to a higher energy machine, you can, you know, you're not satisfied with 10 to the minus 15 seconds. You want to see what happened 10 to the minus 20 seconds, 10 to the minus 30 seconds, you know, this kind of a thing. So, so we know quite well the way the universe uh, was behaving way back toward the moment of the, the so-called Big Bang. You know, the words that we use to refer to the way the universe started, started to expand and then it's kind of slowed down its expansion, then sped up the expansion. We know quite well the way this happened. However, if you then ask the question, which I think is kind of what you're asking, what was before that? Like, where did all this stuff come from? Right. Where did it all come from? Exactly. That's a huge open question. That is an open question for science. Um, we do not have an answer for that. We have a lot of really fascinating kind of edge of knowledge uh, speculation about what, you know, where this kind of universe could have come from. Because at the end of the day, it's also related to, it's related to a question that I think about a lot and a lot of my colleagues think about a lot. It's weird because our universe is not just expanding. It's not just enormous and empty and wonderful and curious inducing, curiosity inducing and just like kind of gobsmackingly cool in all ways. It's also super weird because our universe is kind of filled with magic numbers. What I mean is that there are constants of nature that are just kind of numbers that are put there that we measure that we have no particular way to explain why those numbers are what they are. So for, I'll give you an example, the electron. You remember, you know, learning about electricity and physics, like, you know, you have charge, like an electron has a particular charge to it, right? And this particular electron charge is the measure of how strong the electromagnetic force pulls on this thing. But why is that number the way it is? 
we don't know why that number is the way it is. It just, it's just is. It's nice that it is because it's really good that our universe is here, right? But why is that number the way? There's another one that's like the, called the gravitational constant. And this is maybe something you've never heard of, but in our equations for gravity, there's always this G factor, which is something we just measure. It's like, it's n- nothing that comes from a theory, nothing that comes from like a clear understanding of the universe. Like, Eureka, I'm a theoretical scientist and I write down a mathematical way. This predicts all of the universe. It's just this number there that we measure. And it's always there. It basically measures the strength, the, the sort of broad global way with which gravity interacts, things interact via gravity. It's just a number. It's always the same. So why is that number the way it is? There's no there's no explanation. There's no mechanism. And physicists, we love mechanisms. That's what we're looking for. It's like, it's not enough. The physicist is the person for whom that's just the way it is, is never a satisfying answer. Also, this uh, we haven't talked about it, but the reason your particles, like electrons, the reason they have the property known as mass is that everywhere in the universe, everywhere is permeated with this thing called the Higgs field. And the Higgs field is more or less like an invisible jelly that permeates all of space everywhere. You don't feel it, but your individual particles do. And as they move through the universe, a little bit of their energy is stuck into a point. It's kind of dragged by this jelly, like an electron. As it moves through this jelly, a little bit of it is is dragged. It's kind of like, you know, firing a bullet into a vat of molasses. It's going to slow down a little bit, you know. So a little bit of it is stuck into this point we measure as mass. But it doesn't, and and the the extent to which this particle is dragged a little bit by the jelly and it gets some mass is set by a particular number known as the Higgs vacuum expectation value. You don't need to know the details of that. Just uh, it's trust me, not trust me. It's a number that we can measure, and it's just a, it doesn't have to be that number, but it is that number. But but it's really good that that number is the way it is because if it was something different, our universe would not be here the way it is right now. Like atoms would never have formed and you and I would not be here to have this conversation. So it's good that our universe is filled with these magic numbers. But why are these numbers the way they are? It's really dissatisfying to a lot of physicists because we have no mechanism to explain why these numbers are they are. And it's really it's really dissatisfying to say, well, maybe that's just the way it is because it does it's not satisfying, right? It's like that's that's not good for physicists. So some people are like, okay, what if there's nothing? So it kind of makes, you know, the sort of like the, the, the weird ones amongst us think it's like, well, maybe our universe is very special. Maybe something was kind of arranged specially just for us, right? And then it sounds very kind of like weird and sort of like woo-woo in a way. But some of us instead start to think, okay, maybe the reason we have these particular numbers, these magic numbers in our universe... Maybe the reason is that our universe is actually nothing special. And in fact, these numbers could be something on a very large range of uh, values. In fact, a nearly infinite range of values of that number. And in fact, all of these other values, in fact, do exist as the correct values in other universes in a multiverse. And so when I say multiverse, we're not talking about like Marvel movies. We're not talking about superheroes. We're, We're talking about... The fact that our universe, when it started way back at the moment of the Big Bang, it was t- something tiny and it started to kind of like expand in this sort of like in all directions, right? Maybe, and, and it has all these really nice properties, the electron charge, the va- Higgs vacuum expectation value, the gravitational constant. These values were just right to allow, you know, stuff to form and then atoms to form and then, you know, life to evolve and for you and I to have this wonderful conversation. But there could be an almost infinite number of other universes in a kind of landscape of universes in a multiverse that also started to pop up next to ours at the same time. 
but these other universes took on nearly all the other values, right? Took on nearly all of the other values of these possible magic numbers. And in most of, the, of those other universes, the values were wrong so that nothing ever happened. They started to expand and maybe the, everything was wrong. And so they collapsed immediately or they started to expand and there are particles in them, but the particles didn't have mass. And so atoms never formed and they're just completely chaotic, empty spaces for, you know, for basically eternity. So that means that statistically, at least one of these had to be like ours, right? And so that's kind of like, if you ask the question, what was before the Big Bang? We, we don't really know how to formulate an answer to that right now, but we, we do have a, you know, we, we have, there is an idea that is out there that we could be one universe in a possible, possibly infinite number of multiverse, or sorry, universes in a multiverse sort of landscape, if you will, uh, that these other universes could have also kind of bubbled into universes at the same time, or, you know, it's hard to define what time is in this concept. But that's kind of an end run around the question, what was before the Big Bang? We don't know what was before the Big Bang, but if our Big Bang came from this kind of like multiverse landscape, that in principle could provide a mechanism as to why our universe is the way it is right now. All that being said, we have no way to test this hypothesis. Yeah. Right? If I say, well, maybe the universe is in a multiverse, I have no way to test this. Without getting into necessarily like the religious aspect of things, it is there a plan in case we accidentally prove or disprove that a God exists? Like, is, is there a plan on paper somewhere where like, hey, what if we prove this or disprove it? Like, what are we going to do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's also a question that has absolutely nothing to do with particle physics. And I don't mean that in a, in a rude way. I mean, I'm, I don't mean that in a rude way at all. I just mean that the the particular set of thoughts and feelings and sensations and psychological you know phenomena and emotions that go into this kind of uh, realm of and also political and social this realm of things we refer to as religion that's a totally and completely different set and separate thing than what we do in physics so this is this is a this is a safe space here what is your most outlandish theory like ooh, i can't share this with my physicist buddies yet most physicists we're <laughs> totally obsessed with outlandish theories we we are trying desperately to find answers to these questions that have been sometimes open questions for like a hundred years like or you know almost a hundred years you know for example one of the big open questions in science is how do gravity and quantum mechanics work together you don't really know the, need to know the details of those words but essentially we have in physics, we have these two fantastically good theoretical models that have that are that that describe our universe really, really well. We have one that's called general relativity, and this was you know, by Einstein. And this is the this describes how this is a set of mathematics that really, really, really accurately describes how gravity works on very large scales. Then we have a completely separate set of mathematics known as quantum physics. And this, does, this governs the world of the very, very small, the particles like the things that I work on. And each of these by itself, these models, these theories, each of these by itself ranks among the most impressive intellectual achievements of humankind. But there's a huge problem because when we try to kind of naively combine these two, hoping for a more kind of fundamental theory of the universe, everything goes crazy. It breaks. We get like nonsense answers like infinite energy. I don't even know what that means. Or like 
probabilities greater than 100%. Like, what does it mean to have a probability greater than 100%? Like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, like, there's a 200% right. chance that it's going to rain today. What? No, that doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, even I know that. So when that... <laughs> When this happens, this is the universe's way of telling us that we need to think harder, right? So this is, you know, and so as physicists, we love new ideas. You know, we love new scientifically based ideas. So I really wouldn't say there's anything kind of outlandish. However, there is one theory that's not mine that I find fascinating from a kind of philosophical and also scientific perspective. But it's also one that I currently... I, I would have no problem talking with my physicist colleagues at, you know, at beers, uh, you know, at beers and burgers. Um, but it's also one that like, I can't really even wrap my mind around uh, even as a physicist. And so that's why I think I'm kind of drawn to it because it's also, it's almost kind of like, it's really hard to, to like understand what the hell it means. I'll give you, this is what it is. So a colleague of mine, uh, Max Tegmark, um, he came up with an idea a few years ago. Max had this idea. It's like, okay, so, the weird thing about our, another weird thing about our universe from a kind of philosophical perspective, like I kind of said earlier, like we have like these magic numbers in our universe. Why are these numbers the way they are? So it's, sort of, it's almost like metaphysical, right? It's sort of like woo woo, man. It's like philosophical. It's like, why is our universe the way it is, man? You can also think about it in the sense that from a mathematical perspective, our universe seems to follow certain kinds of mathematics really, really, really well. And for those of you that haven't taken a math class for a long time, math to you probably means like two plus two equals four or like, you know, taking a derivative of something and like, you're like, ah, this is too much. I totally sympathize with that. But math, in fact, is super, super more wonderful and complicated once it gets uh, wonderful when you get to the more complicated stuff, because math is really about the relationships, complicated relationships amongst things and the way that different types of quantities work together. And you can, in fact, write down particular types of mathematics, like a mathematician can write down a large number of possible ways that math could behave specifically in the context of physics. So for example, like I said, at the very beginning of our conversation, everything around you that you interact with is made up of 17 different species, separate species of kinds of particles and the way those interact. And in fact, I can write down a mathematical set of equations that are based upon some pretty straightforward math that, you know, things like group theory and, you know, Lagrangian theory and calculus and all these differential equations. You, it's pretty straightforward once you get into it. I can write down a theory that describes all this stuff really, really, really well, like almost shockingly well. And it's a, but it's also a kind of a weird theory. You don't need to know the details, but for example, the gauge group of our universe of the standard model is something called SU3 cross SU1 cross, cross, sorry, SU3 cross SU2 cross U1. You don't need to know the details of that, except for the fact that it doesn't have to be that. Why is it, why, why is it SU3? Why can't it be SU5? Why can't it be SU10? Why can't there be something else on the front of that? For some reason, our universe chose this one particular gauge group and it went and it ran with it. It's like, why is that that way? Also, why does our universe go- governed by these statistical distributions so well? Like everyone listened to this. If I were to take your average resting heart rate and put them on a little chart, I would take your heart rate. It would make a little kind of Gaussian bell curve, like a normal distribution, right? This is just the way our universe uses statistics all the time. Statistical distributions, we call these. If you stand on a street corner, the rate with which cars will pass you will follow some kind of thing called a Poisson distribution. Again, you don't need to know the details, but just to know that 
our universe loves statistical distributions. And I defy you to hear a nerdier statement said today. But what this means, but you start thinking about this from a kind of philosophical perspective, like, wait a minute, I thought that math was just this kind of thing that humans invented to better understand the universe around us, right? Which is like magical and mystical and all of this, you know, majestic and all its glory. Like it's math is our sort of like human, you know, shortcut to better understand. It's like a language, right? We, like we invented languages to better communicate. We invented mathematics to better understand, you know, and describe the universe around us. And it's good. The math is good, but it's never perfect, right? It's never a little bit. It turns out that in physics, it's almost perfect. And that's super weird because why did our universe choose this particular set of math to use? But as a mathematician, the mathematician can write down a huge number of other possible mathematical structures or equations that are, our universe doesn't seem to use at all. Like, why is that? So it starts to make us think that maybe humans did not invent mathematics. Maybe humans discovered mathematics. Maybe mathematics is the actual underpinnings of everything around us in existence. Maybe our universe is secretly made of math, secretly fundamentally made of math. Behind the scenes, if you were able to, I don't even know what behind the scenes means, but for example, if you were to look outside of the universe or like on the multiverse, or you were to look down at the very, very smallest possible thing, smaller than we could ever possibly, we could ever possibly look, maybe our, the fundamental structures of the universe are mathematical, and so math is the very basic nature of our universe. I don't fully understand what this means, honestly, but I think it's fascinating because I start to think about it. Like it, it starts to make my brain break and I like this and in a good way. I like it when somebody comes up with an idea that started, that starts to make my brain break in a good way. Cause it stretches me out of my you know, comfort zone. Okay. And I like to, I like to be stretched out of my comfort zone. So this is one, this is one, this is possible candidate for the answer to the question. It's a kind of theory that's very speculative um, and not even, no one really fully understands what it means. And I, I'm not convinced that Max does either. And I don't think he does, but this is a fascinating concept that I think is worth considering because in the past, you know, thinking about things like this have sometimes led to really profound insights in the future, you know, about the universe, you know, for example, back in before 1915, when Einstein came up with this general theory of relativity, which is a profoundly different way of thinking about gravity than the way it was before. No one could have come up with that like ex nihilo. It's like, it's like this would come from nowhere. Einstein had to think very deeply about the fundamental underpinnings of everything around us. And it's like, after a long time, it's like, Hmm, you know, it's like the emoji with the hand like this is like Einstein was like this for a long time. It's like, Hmm. And eventually he's like, Oh, wait a minute. What if gravity is not actually a force where like the moon is attracting the earth? What if instead gravity is a phenomenon that arises because the presence of a certain amount of stuff within a certain volume of space creates a kind of sinkhole in the fabric of space itself? Maybe space is not nothingness. Maybe space is not empty. Maybe space has a kind of fabric to it. And so when stuff is in there, it's sort of warping the fabric of space like a sinkhole. And as the moon is attracted to Earth, what it means is that it's constantly falling toward the Earth in this sort of vortex in space. Like that's mind blowing. No one could have come up with that in, you know, to begin with. And if you kind of had that idea to begin with, you wouldn't even know how to formulate it. But Einstein was the, was the person who's like, you really need to think profoundly about the very, very deep fundamental underpinnings of everything. 
And once you do that, eventually, sometimes the new profound right. insight will will come along. So is a, I'm guessing that a part of that potential theory that's not worked out right yet would be like, well, how can the universe be made up of something that doesn't physically exist? Well, that's exactly. You're asking a really key philosophical question here. What does it mean for something to physically exist? Oh, crap. <laughs> you know, because here's the thing. I totally agree with you. I don't know what it means for math to physically exist, but the, the, the kind of connection you can make is like I said earlier, our universe seems to use certain mathematical structures. Again, that there's a mathematician doing their, her job would be able to write on a blackboard a very large number of possibilities. Our universe chose this one. Why did it not choose any of the others? Okay, whatever. We chose this one. That's fine. So does that mean that our universe has a kind of possible set of an infinite number of possible mathematical structures that are being instantiated by universes like ours. And again, it's kind of related to multiverse theory in a way, but again, I don't know what it means for, for math to physically exist. Um, but it is a hypothesis that I think is worth thinking about. Are we going to go back in time? Can we go back in time? Is that going to happen? Short answer? Probably not. Um, time travel. Uh, well, okay. First of all, if somebody asks, can't, will we ever travel through time? The question is yes, and you're doing it right now. You're traveling through time at a rate of one second per second. <laughs> so we're all traveling through right time. Now, right? and Indeed we are. However, if you want to do some other kinds of travel through time where you're, for example, uh, you know, traveling at one year per second, then that's something that we have to work on. Um, it seems right now with the kind of theoretical limitations that we have within you know, special relativity and general relativity and these kinds of things. We, it seems likely that we'll probably never be able to do backwards time travel. Um, I, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but the short answer is that we might be able to, at some point, be able to travel into the future, far future, but traveling backward in time seems to be less likely. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is mathematical. Again, at the end of the day, we have this thing, we have these mathematical rules that are part of relativity. It seems as though it's probably not likely for us to have uh, so-called so closed time-like curves. It, I mean, it, it, I'd be happy to prove or be proven wrong, but we don't have any evidence that that's really possible. Forward time travel could be possible, but backward might be impossible. Why would backward be not possible, but forward be possible? Like what's the... It has to do with a kind of uh, technicality of the equations that we use to describe uh, so-called relativity, this thing called relativity. Basically when you have objects that are moving at very, very high speeds or at speeds that are beyond what light can do, there are certain limitations to what they can do. Um, and in the equations of the relativity, you can, you can come up with trajectories that certain people, that objects like us, physical objects, certain trajectories that we could even in principle take. Uh, I, I don't think I'm describing this very well, but you can think of it in the sense that moving forward into space, there's a lot more possibilities that we have because the future is not really, you know, we haven't lived the future yet because the past has a particular, has a particular set of strictures on it that have already existed. It's harder for us to find a kind of physical way that you could ever go backwards in time. There's, it's a, I don't think I'm answering this very well, but it takes a much longer discussion. I think I kind of get it right. We can go forward because we don't know what the path is, but we can't go backward because we can't go backward on a specific path. Kind it's of? it's a rough way of thinking about it. It's a rough way of thinking about it, but yes. However, another reason to answer, another way that I want to answer a question is that it also seems that if you can find closed time-like curves, which means if you could find a way 
to travel backwards in time, it might take such extreme gravitational conditions, such as those that are only found in the middle of a black hole, that it would probably just rip your body apart and you might not be able to survive the trip. So even if you were to find some kind of backwards time travel thing, you might not survive the trip at all. Again, this is all speculation at the moment because we've never been able to, to see it. There's other reasons to think that backward time travel might be, not be possible because you might say, ask the question, if backward time travel is possible, why haven't people from the future visited us yet? Why has this never happened? Why have they never, you know, and people, this has been done a few times in the past. People are like scientists or, you know, speculative fiction fans. They're like, let's have a party. Let's just announce. It's like, we're all going to be at this one place at one time. And we'll just advertise to the universe, uh, both in the future and the past, in the future, especially meet us here. It's a safe space. Meet us to say hello. Aliens from the future, whoever, future humans meet us there. If, if future, if backwards time travel is possible, if we discover this in the future, then just meet us here. And no one showed up. So it's it, this is kind of a logical way of thinking that probably backwards time travel is possible. It is not possible. That's pretty much all the questions that we had. I mean, is there anything else that you think we missed or anything like, ooh, you should know about this? Or did we kind of cover? You know, we could go on for hours about all these topics and more. I just, you know, I think that for me, you know, the main thing to keep in mind when we think about these concepts because again, in a conversation like this, we've touched upon a lot of different things, right? Both sort of like boots on the ground science here at CERN, the large Hadron Collider turning back on and world record of the highest energy ever, you know, and, and then we got into philosophy and we talked a little bit about a religion and these kinds of things. At the end of the day, all of this stuff to me, you know, the, the human endeavors that we have, you know, doing science, big science, like the Large Hadron Collider, smaller science, like chemistry, you know, your chemistry professor will do like, you know, tabletop experiments, you know, exploring the universe. All of these things, especially in a moment like this, especially in a moment of extreme, you know, stress and strife and hardship, you know, like large scale war has literally returned, you know, large scale war waged by a fascist has returned to Europe for the first time in almost 80 years, like a pandemic that's, you know, killed so many of our loved ones. It's like really, really a bad time. And in moments like this, I like to keep in mind that science, you know, like big projects like the Large Hadron Collider that are mounted solely because our universe, our, our species is curious about the universe. There's no reason for this research other than just curiosity. We want to know how the universe works better. These projects demonstrate that, you know, so thousands of people come here from around the globe to strictly work upon on, on curiosity for the universe, strictly because, you know, for, for the sake of peace, right? The things that connect us as humans are much, much stronger than the things that are put in place to, to separate us. You know, I'll give you a, a physics example. I said earlier that an individual electron, right, is, sometimes you can think of it as a little point of something, like a little particle, like a BB moving through space. But in fact, if you think about it from a more fundamental way, it, it's a kind of a little wavy packet of vibration that's moving through space. Turns out that that's not actually the most fundamental way to think about an electron and therefore about all the particles that make up you. Turns out, if you look at the math just right, we've talked about math, if you look at the math just right, it turns out that the much more fundamental and accurate way to think about an electron moving through space is that it's not a chunk of something moving through space, but in fact is a little vibration in a field that permeates all of space everywhere all the time. And this little thing is a vibration in this field. Imagine you're playing with a cat on your bed. You're playing with your cat on your bed and you take your sheet and you, spread, you, you, you stretch the bed sheet tight and you put your finger and make a little tent in the sheet and you move this tent around and your cat chases this thing, right? 
that's actually what a particle is. Is the much more, if you took the sheet away, you put your finger up, cat wouldn't care about that. He's just going to lick himself and go back to sleep. But if the fact that there's a sheet there makes it so the thing exists, is possible to exist and this electron moves around. Turns out that's the much more fundamental way to think about our universe and everything in existence. And therefore what that means is that you and I and everyone listening to us, everyone in existence, we are all collections of particles that are excitations in the exact same quantum fields that permeate all the universe. We are all connected in a much deeper, much more fundamental way than any of the ways that other people try to separate us. So I like to keep this kind of a thinking thing in mind. And even and I, when I say I, I do, I mean, I, I have my own problems and the world is really frustrating and, you know, terrifying sometimes, even to me, I like to keep this in mind. And I like to hope to try to inspire other people to keep this in mind when, you know, next time you get short with someone or you start to make a judgment on someone or make, you know, some kind of biased, uh, you know, uh, viewpoint, just catch yourself and realize that we are all part of the same universe. And in fact, I'm really glad that you're all in this universe with me. I want to thank James so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And we have also included his information in the episode description. He has a TikTok that if you want to learn more about this, he does a great job of really explaining and condensing a lot of the things that we talked about. It's really cool. It's really cool. Okay, now let's bring in John Shull and get to the pointless part of the show. Do you ever think of the nature of your existence? Like how we got here, what your purpose is in life? Do you think about that kind of stuff? It's a very deep question. Uh, yes, a lot actually. Uh, I think about life and death and how, how we were to be what we are. But you got to be careful who you, tell, who you talk to about it because it can it can lead down a very um religious path pretty quick yeah i'm very interested in in these types of subjects uh but having a i don't know what you want to call it an actual debate or an actual talk with somebody on it is nearly impossible anymore it's kind of like politics like you either you either say something and you get ready for you know for what's going to happen or you just don't say anything about it at all, I feel. I hear what you're saying, right? You have to be kind of careful about who you're having that conversation with. Because even if you're just kind of talking about the way that you feel, if you're talking to a certain kind of person, that could go in a direction that maybe you don't necessarily want it to go. And then you're in for a whole mess of stuff, right? I mean, right, so when you talk about our existence, there's only two... There's only two realistic ways that it could have gone down we think right and you know i i know where i stand or where i believe i'm sure you stand on one we can talk about it if you want i kind of now i want to hear like what all right give me your spiel give me your thing give me the inner john shell what inner john shell thinks like how we got here i i should start off by saying this i'm not trying to offend anybody these are my own personal opinions uh so take it for what what it is Come back in five minutes, but but here's what I think. I, I don't think uh, the Bible, biblical senses, Adam and Eve had anything to do with the start of, of mankind, the start of the earth, start of the world. I think we were some cluster of rock floating through space, got run into by another asteroid comet. It hit some kind of core, 
that started a trigger of some kind of cataclysmic event, which then led to evolution. And now we're here. I don't think it's anything more than literally just nature. And you could say there's biblical, there's there's a God intervention, whatever you want to say, in, in evolution. But I don't believe that there was one man, one woman, and they started the entire, you know, humankind. Started like Earth, essentially. I don't actually really know that much about what I honestly even really think. Right? Because I was raised religious like i was raised roman catholic all this kind of stuff and went to church basically until i was like 16 17 years old i don't go anymore and without getting into the whole religious aspect i honestly like man i really hope that there's something out there that created us and that there's some kind of plan but the inner me just kind of thinks that like look we just kind of end up here and when you're dead you're dead i would love to think it's not that but i kind of think that in some ways, that's also what makes life special, is that when you die, you die. You got you got one chance, man. I mean, I will say this. I, I, I do wonder that, especially as I get older, uh, like what happens when when I pass? Like, what, will I just be floating around Earth? Will I just, I mean, what, what will happen to my soul? You know, that that's probably the biggest question I ask. And I, I don't. I don't really have any real thoughts on it because I I've, I don't know what to, I don't know what to think. I mean I I don't think I don't think you go to heaven. I don't think you go to hell. I don't think there's one person that decides you know if you've been a good person your entire life. Uh, but like, what happens? Do I get? Am I is reincarnation real? Will I come back as a dog? My next life, like who knows? I'd come back as a dog, but like not an active dog. Like I don't want some owner that's going to make me do all kinds of stuff and go on walks. Like, I just want to be there, hang out, get my food, snuggle up, get some pets, go about my day. Like, I don't want to be hike. Like, whenever people take their dogs to mountains and, like, the dog's running up the mountain or the dog's riding the motorcycle or whatever. Like, man, I don't want to be that kind of dog. Like, I just want to lay on my bed and be left alone. Yeah. I don't know, man. How often? Okay. How often would you say that you think about the nature of our existence then? Like, is this a daily thing? hourly weekly once a month I mean, it's probably every day i have a question or or i or i just you know obviously i work in the news so i cover tragedy a lot i also cover some good things as well and you know you, you find yourself asking why this why that you know um so i'd probably say every day i mean i you know the, the funny thing is, is is nobody really knows right i i don't believe here's a question for you do you believe those people that say they died for, for five or ten minutes and they saw something? What, whatever it is. There's been tons of people that have said that they've seen things. Do you believe those people? I believe that those people had that experience. Like, I believe that that's what happened, right? Like, when somebody tells you what they think, I believe that that's what they think really happened. Is that what really happened? Who? That's my kind of thing, right, man? Like, who the hell knows? Right? Like maybe the biblical God is the real God and maybe it's a spaghetti monster in the sky and maybe like there's alternate universes. At the end of the day, we don't know. And it kind of doesn't matter. You're dead either way, whether you're right or wrong. You're, you're still dead. You bumped something and all your sound isn't coming through. God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, I can hear you now. John would end this the whole thing, and he was like, you could see it in his eyes. He was passionate. He was eloquent. 
He was invigorating to the people. This was going to be John's greatest contribution to this show, and he bumped the mute on his mic and cut it off. No, I mean, I, I was just basically saying that, you know, once again, th- this topic for some reason is a, is a very touchy subject uh, to many people, and I understand why. I come at it from a, a non-religious point of view. I, I don't, you know, th- there are things that make me think there's a higher power up there. Um, but once again, whatever essence of that, like, what is it? Uh, you know, we don't know. Uh, and, and you only know when you're dead. So unless unless one of us wants to die and come back, I guess we'll just have to keep waiting. I would do that. I, I would. I, I think I would be declared dead to come back just to see what it was like. Yeah, but how long do you want to be dead for? Right. Because what if you have to be dead for a certain amount of time? Like, how long are you willing to be dead in order to find this out? Like, it's like, hey, man, okay, we're going to kill you for five minutes. You're going to be dead for five minutes, and we can think we can bring you back. You, How long are you willing to be dead for? Like, how far are you willing to push it? Five minutes, an hour, a week? Because I'm not going over ten minutes. Like, no, 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 no. I don't want to risk that that much. I mean, probably just to the point to where I would not have to worry about brain damage. You know what I mean? So if that's just a minute or 30 seconds, I guess that's all I'm going under because I would not want to do it on purpose and then come back and have brain damage for the rest of my life. Here's what I actually think about a lot is like there has to be some kind of – let's say that there's – you die and then you go into another plane of existence, right? Like somebody's got to set rules for that, right? Because are your ancestors just watching you all the time? Like grandmama just saw what I was doing in the basement earlier today? Like somebody's got to set rules for that, like, who's setting those rules? Like, because otherwise, your whole ancestors are like, oh, look at John playing with his PP again. Third time today. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, what? I guess the thing that people search for in their entire life, uh, and I would be curious to talk to a, I'm using air quotations, uh, an expert on this is, uh, you, you know, what if it's for not? What if you live your life by a certain code in a certain order just to find out that on the other side there is no fucking order? Like you just go into chaos. That's kind of what I ultimately think is, right, like your only job here is essentially to keep the species going. That's it. And that's your legacy is that like you contributed to this thing that in the grand scheme of things is really it's the basis for this entire show, right? Like your life in many ways is profoundly pointless. It's the greatest thing that you will ever do. And it has incredible consequence all across everyone that you ever meet. And in the grand scheme of things, it's entirely pointless and that it's totally meaningless. I'm just going to let that sink in. That Fucking was, A, dude, right? <laughs> that might have been the best sentence you've said on this entire podcast in 213 episodes. That was pretty impressive. I'm pretty yeah, happy I, with that, honestly. I don't even know. I mean, we can keep talking if you want, but I feel like you just dropped the mic and I, I have to pick it up or just walk away myself. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just move on to our shout outs. And we have a we have a viewer voicemail we're gonna go over. I don't know how to I don't know how to play it. We might play it, we might just read the transcription. I'm not entirely sure. But either way, go All ahead. right, well let's uh let's start with shout outs first here. Uh Claudia Sarasa, Kelsey Rice, Finn Ballerini, Tyler Waltman, Tabitha Snyder, Gary Jordan, Kyle Giacona, Matt Minyard. Chloe Sanchez and Emily Romero. Bravo to all of you. You get the gold star. Thanks for checking us out. 
and leave us leave us a review on uh, on Apple, by the way, on iTunes. I like reading those. They make me feel good. Okay. Uh, okay, so this is a viewer uh, voicemail that was left over. Uh, this is about – this is basically for John. This was about his top five band names. This is from Greg in Des Moines, which I always think is Des Moines. I'm sure Greg in Des Moines hates that too, right? Like Des Moines, not Des Moines. But John essentially had – John, do you know what a Limp biscuit actually is? No, and neither do you, Greg. Greg does, and I've actually heard this before, and I fact-checked it as well. A limp biscuit is when a bunch of dudes gather around a cookie or a biscuit and um, do their thing on it, and the last one who does it has to eat it. So do you feel now like that should actually be on your list of best band names? Wow, he's really dropping. That's twice in the last five minutes. Someone's dropped the mic. Uh... Greg, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I get it. However, that is kind of what makes the band name even better. And the that, fact that, that the fact that they were one of the best-selling bands for a couple of years goes to show that you can literally have a, I guess you can call it a derogatory meaning behind your band name or just a sick, twisted band name. And no one, no one will care if you make... Uh, well, I'm not saying they make great music, but at the time they were considered, you know, they were a good band for when they were out, right? Like in in high, they're like Nickelback basically. Where later on they became incredibly unpopular, but people did like their music. Like when that song came on, you were like, for the time, they captured a time that maybe in hindsight should not have existed. That's also that thing kind of like the idea of a Limp biscuit. Like, has that ever really happened? Have ever five guys ever been like, let's do this, dudes? I mean, I, I've been in groups of five of, of five dudes a lot, and I can guarantee you not one person was thinking or would even dare to mention doing a, or making a Limp biscuit. They're like, if that's the game you're playing, then do you. But that's a, that's a party that I'm going to pass on attending. Listen, Greg. I I appreciate the the criticism, but I I'm still not I'm still not going to change my opinion. Still one of the best band names that I can think of. I'd still like to actually think that I really should have included back Black Sabbath at number one. That's a great band. Yeah, that was. I mean, that, I thinking back, that probably should have been like the rightful number one. I mean, it just it echoes the band and the time and how yeah, crazy Ozzy was. was and everything. Band name. Okay. All right. All right, I got a couple of uh, bangers for you. Uh, all right, uh, who would make a better spokesman for your company? William Shatner, Tom Selleck, or Chuck Norris? God, they all kind of went a little off the deep end, I think. Well, probably William Shatner, because without getting into any kind of politics or beliefs or anything like that, I think that he has stayed a little bit more towards the center of things than those other two have. So he would probably be the best, but like, right? Like vanilla is, vanilla's on everybody's menu for a reason. Like I think that if, but Chuck, but if you were willing to kind of weather that storm from certain people, then probably Chuck Norris, just because of like the kind of the, the old jokes about him and stuff like that. See, I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to go with Tom Selleck, I think, as, as who I would pick. Oh, he's like America's dad. He was America's dad before. If you, I, th- I feel like if you went on the list of America's dads, it was basically Tom Selleck and then um, 
The guy from Full House. Oh, uh, Dave Coulier? Or, uh... No, Bob Saget. <laughs> Dave, first of all, how do you just whip out Dave Coulier's name like that? Like you've been... John Stamos? I say like I know him. Uh, Dave Coulier is actually from Metro Detroit, so oh, he... Oh, uh... God. Here we go. <laughs> all right, we'll just move on. Um, there's actually a lot of great people from Metro Detroit, but whatever. I'm sure there is, right? The ones that survived probably had to be pretty sweet. All right, which uh, which one of these fest festivals are you most likely to attend? A rib fest, a cosplay fest, or a music festival? Music festival to me is one of the worst places on earth. I like music. I like going to concerts. But a music festival with essentially tens of thousands of drunk people on overpriced beer and God knows what else in the middle of summer, hot, dirty, sweaty, that to me is one of the worst places on earth, second only to Disney World in the summer. So, dude, I'd go to cosplay because you're going to see something. Like, you're going to see some stuff that you haven't seen before. And I don't really like, I'm not that into ribs, right? You can only eat so many ribs. I think I'm doing a rib fest, man. I haven't been to, like, a, 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 you know, like a St. Louis rib fest or, like, a, you know, like a Alabama rib fest where, like, they make real ribs. I've never been. I would love to attend one someday. I, well, Florida, both you and I used to live in Florida, but Florida wasn't really known for like its barbecue. I've never really gone, I've stopped in Memphis and had some. And I've had Kansas, because I'm from Kansas, I've had Kansas City barbecue, which to me personally is pretty overrated. I didn't think it was particularly good. But I don't like Carolina barbecue, which I believe is used vinegar. I didn't like that. But you get some, like Memphis was like, ooh, that's pretty good. Yeah, man. Memphis, like I said, St. Louis, Detroit has some good stuff. No, Washington, no, it doesn't. Washington D.C. is supposed to have some good barbecue. No, it's not. Nobody's ever said to me like, "Man, you've had the barbecue." Every place is not famous for barbecue, right? Like, you know what, man? Utah barbecue is the best. Barbecue is in the South, and barbecue should stay with the South. They own barbecue, and everybody else that starts should stop trying to horn in. I'm not. Make you're your fighting thing. against yourself here. I'm. I'm. I'm part of. I'm, I agree with you. Well, I, I have no idea about our top five, so I guess I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> curious about that. We can talk about the NFL uh, kind of coming back. Hard knocks in Detroit. Oh, Detroit Lions. Detroit. Detroit. Why is Detroit the worst sports city in America? In the sense that the teams in Detroit are worse as a whole between the four major sports: hockey, baseball, basketball, and football. Is it the worst sports city in America right now? Yeah, for the for the last five or six years, yeah, we we it wasn't, um, it it for sure wasn't, uh, but we're by far now. I mean, bas problem is we're we're on the up. We think, not we, <laughs> Detroit sports, um, but you know the Red Wings are are, are shitty, the Pistons are shitty, the Lions are going to be the Lions, Tigers are terrible, just a lot of negativity. Okay, all right, you ready for our top five? I am out right, of this so world <laughs> nice i mean it was good it's good um so our five top five is top five space things and we don't know anything about space but these are just two people who don't really have much of knowledge or an education because while we are educated we didn't really do the best job of paying attention but these are just the five, top five things we think are cool about space 
What's your number five? So as a disclaimer, because I know I'm going to get a lot of shit about this. Uh, these are just things that uh, are pretty generic. Because when I was looking up like most interesting oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know things mean. of space, I mean, there are there are so many that you you know you could have a list of a thousand. Except I, I don't know what the Rimbar Theasis comet is. Yeah, right. Like we're doing like comets in general, not this particular comet, right? Like we don't know enough about space to do that. All right. Uh, so my number five, uh, I, I, I put spacewalking. Spacewalk. You know, like when astronauts go out into space and they have those cool little cameras. That's your number five? Just the, the fact that we're walking around up there? Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Actually, now Are, that I think about it, I it's mean, kind of crazy. That we're uh, imagine, uh, imagine being up there. Uh, however many millions uh, or whatever thousand miles above Earth, and you're just floating around with a little tether attached to your belt. And if anything happens and you go bye-bye, you're just going to be floating in space forever. That fucking terrifies me. Well, thank you, George Clooney. All right. I mean, I get it. Like, it's pretty cool. But everything about space, when you think about it, is pretty cool. I don't know if I would put the just floating around out there as my number five, but... My number five is a light year. Just like how far that is. And then you feel like the universe is like 93 billion light years. Like, whoa. Yeah, that's pretty nutty. The, the concept of a light year. Yeah, that's, uh, man. I mean, just, I, I, do, Mike, I do have a question, a follow-up question on, on when you said everything in space is cool. Is that only because it's unexplored? Is that what makes it so cool is the allure of the unknown? I would think so, right? Because it's different. Because it's so different than anything that we personally have experienced. And it opens up the possibility of that there's so much that's out there. I mean, look, I was under the influence of uh, drugs and alcohol when I was thinking about this. But I was thinking about the fact that, like, right? Like, when you look up, there's not, like, a dome up there, man. If, like, if gravity stopped for a minute... Or for however long, like you would just go floating out into fucking nothing, right? Like it's not like you bump up against the ceiling. Like you just. I, t- I took two things there. away from that sentence. One, I need to be on what you were on, and two, you're absolutely right, and that's terrifying. Right. Like think about that. If gravity just stopped and we all just kind of floated off, because there's nothing like keeping us in besides gravity. It's not like the air is stopping us. Holy shit. Yeah, that's kind of wild. Isn't that fucking crazy? Like, you just... You look up there and you think, oh, there's something above that that, that's containing all of them. No. 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 You're just (laughs) not. Yeah, it's wild, man. floating out there. There. Uh, Okay, what's your number four? Uh, So my number four is just... uh, It's kind of boring, but I just put the planets that we know of. Oh. My number four is also planets, but I think... All of them, basically. Just that there's other ones, and they could be made of, like, diamonds, lava. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and how many are there, really? I mean, there are probably millions of what could be classified as planets. Okay, what's your number three? Uh, man, I've, I wrote down so many. Um, You know what? For my number three, I I, uh, I, I have so many choices. I'll, I'll, I'll do the unknown just of space. Just... Because we it's it's so vast, it's so big. We have really no idea what's out there. So uh, I know it's once again kind of a cop out, but I'm just going to put the unknown of what is up there. Okay, 
Mine's kind of like that. It's dark energy, dark matter. The idea that 95% of the universe is made up of stuff that we don't know what it is. It's funny you say that. I had uh, I took astronomy in college, and the professor equated dark energy, dark matter, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. It can go by several different terms, I think, uh, to like eating a hot dog. Because in a hot dog, you really don't know what's in a hot dog, but you eat it anyways. That's kind of like what dark matter is to space. We don't really know what it is, except that it's there and it serves some kind of purpose that we're not really aware of. I don't think it's fair what people say about hot dogs, <laughs> right? Like hot dogs have gotten a bad rap. They have over the, years. over the years. Everybody likes hot dogs. Show me a person that's like, I don't. I'm not eating a hot dog because I don't know what's in it. You don't know what's in anything, right? If somebody this is 100 percent beef, okay. Do you know what that is? What's in that? 100% beef. Right, but you don't <laughs> Which actually is what, know right? what's in there, right? I feel, look, if I'm the hot dog, if I'm the hot dog organization or the hot dog lobbying group or whatever the hot dog people are, I'm suing somebody over this. All right, well, my number two, uh, I have extraterrestrial life. Mm. Okay, I have that a little bit higher on the list, which makes it obvious what that is so i'll just do my two and one together my number two is black holes dudes it like a portal to another dimension what's happening in there i've always thought black holes though there there is a reasonable explanation for what they are we just can't get to them because they're so far away but if you actually uh got to a black hole it's probably just like a hole in space where you just come out the other side or something in the same galaxy is what i mean okay from based on basically all right, based on movies and TV shows, what are you more afraid of, a black hole or quicksand? Probably quicksand. Yeah, quicksand. That shit seems terrifying, right? Because, like, I'm not going to get sucked into a black hole anytime soon. But I could walk into some quicksand and not know yeah, it. Yeah, my fat ass is never getting going into space, so. No, no, God, here we go, space. Okay, my number one, then, is aliens. Okay, I mean, that's fair. I mean, not only is it a, a real threat or a real thing but look look at all the great hollywood uh attractions and movies and comics and everything else it's it's spawned yeah plus it's just the idea that there's somebody else right it's like you found your like hey man what have you guys been doing man this is what happened to us right like can you imagine all the alien species just hanging around a bar like how'd you guys get here well so uh, this is kind of a personal, uh, like a, a, a number one, because I learned about this in astronomy class. Uh, but it's pretty much um, like radio signals from outer space, like the the proof of existence in space. Uh, and this specific signal is called the wow signal. I might be a little iffy on the details because I'm trying to remember this from from you know from many moons ago. Watched. It was a, a radio signal discovered in 1977 uh, by at the Ohio State University. I have the YouTube here real quick if you want to listen to it for five okay. seconds. Let's hear it. It. W- it was a minute and ten seconds long just about. So I'm just going to play a brief like five seconds of it. It is kind of squelchy. So if you have your uh, headphones in or whatever, you might want to turn them down for a quick second. Uh, but but here it is. So here here is what we think was sending a radio transmission back to us in 1977 uh, from maybe billions of galaxies away here. Here's what came through. 
sounds like crickets. <laughs> so anyway, so that like I said, that's a that's a brief that's snippet. It? Well, no, it's it, it goes for about another about another uh, I don't know forty five seconds. It but sounds like noise. Right, but so there's certain diagrams and certain charts that scientists and smarter people than us use to determine if radio signals are just uh, space trash or if there's an actual RF signal or whatever coming from another part of the galaxy or part of the space, galaxies, whatever. And this was the highest frequency that's ever been recorded coming from another place in space. This signal came from past, like the Sagittarius uh, constellation, like that, uh, that far out. I have to say, I'm impressed with your organization and the way that you pulled that off, because I really thought that you were going to drop something. I'm pretty impressed. (laughs) Thanks. I, I, you know, once again, I, I, it's kind I understand it's probably a week number one, but it it kind of all plays into, you know, uh, life out there. And what, like, what would you do? What would you do right now? If you got done recording this podcast, you walk outside and I don't know, fucking space spaceship lands in your front yard. Buy a gun. <laughs> Buy a gun. You're going to be dead. Well, assuming they're they're not. Right. Because, look, I don't think under any circumstances that if we finally meet alien life, unless if alien life comes to us, we're about to get into some shit. <laughs> right? Like, people are people. And they're, if you look at even our history, when one group meets another, it doesn't go well. <laughs> I mean, listen, if aliens want to invade this planet, they better be bringing a lot of firepower. That's all I have to say. Motherfucker, like, they just came from another planet. What are we going to do? Like, all right, you're going to shoot us with your bullets? We just flew a billion miles across the the universe. We're not worried about Jeb and his handgun. If an alien craft was to land here, it would be completely by incident. Because I have to believe uh, that our... uh, as Mike's my camera, your camera needs to be turned off. As my camera just, <laughs> I have no, I have no idea what's happening. My camera just, uh, just turned off here. Though this is scary. The fucking aliens, man. Yeah, it has to be the aliens. Well, maybe we should just end there. I don't even know anymore. Okay, that's gonna go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. And we have that new voicemail number. I haven't totally figured out how to download the voicemails yet, but the number is 316-539-7719. I just tried to do that from memory. So if it's wrong, just check the episode description and the right number will be there. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.